0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob as we begin to consider the life of Joseph. Here, James Jordan gives his thoughts on the structure of the Joseph narrative. Do be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You can sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race there. You'll also find a link to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where we release weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture. Right now, we are wrapping up a series on liturgy and work. With that, we want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing the structure of the Joseph narrative in the Book of Genesis.
1: Well, last time. We start into the second half of the life of Jacob, which is the Joseph narrative, which runs from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. And for the next several weeks, we'll consider that entire narrative in an overview fashion. I think we can do this because everybody here knows the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph doesn't have in it some of the complications that the Jacob story has, especially in terms of right and wrong. Nobody seems to mind that Joseph lied to his brothers and tricked them and deceived them and threw them into prison when they were innocent and basically did a bunch of horrible things to them. You don't read in the commentaries about wicked, evil Joseph like you do about wicked, evil Jacob and wicked, evil Rebecca, And we don't have to spend time as we spent showing that Rebecca and Jacob were not wicked in what they did, we don't have to spend time showing that Joseph was not wicked in what he did. Although, if you just lay it out, what Joseph did is a whole lot worse than anything Rebecca or Jacob ever did. But, for some reason, the commentators don't come down on it. And I think it's partly because it's so obvious that Joseph has a right to do what he did in tricking his brothers and mistreating them in order to bring them to repentance and it's not as clearly seen that that's what Rebecca was doing with Isaac as well but we have beat that force to death enough. So because the Joseph story is not as controversial I think we can spend some time looking at major themes before we start reading it together and going through it. I don't think it will require as much detailed exposition either as the Jacob story will. It's somewhat different in the way it's written and how it's set out. What I have down here in this package of notes then is some overview material. And last time we had started to look at the fact that there are a lot of pairs or doubles in the Joseph narrative. And it stands out. It's a literary feature of the narrative. And this is the Word of God, and so literary aspects of the Bible are part of the divine communication to us, and we need to pay attention to them, which is why we do in here. If God has chosen to write things a certain way or to emphasize things, then we need to take account of that. And this business of pairs comes up here. I read through this list of pairs last week. You can see them here. Part of the theme, I think, in the Joseph story is that we are constantly being given a testimony of two witnesses. That's certainly true in the case of the dreams, Two dreams. Twelve sheaves bow down to Joseph. Twelve constellations bow down to Joseph. That's doubled up for a testimony of two witnesses. It means that it's secure. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Genesis 41 says when Pharaoh's two dreams, both of which have the same meaning, are explained by Joseph. Joseph says, 4132, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, It means the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. In other words, it's there to make certain what's going on. And so I think that a large part of it is we get two witnesses. And that's really true throughout the book of Genesis. Sometimes the witnesses are parallel. They both say the same thing, as in the case of the two dreams that I just mentioned, Pharaoh's two dreams and Joseph's two dreams. Sometimes the two witnesses are contrasting. The dream of the baker and of the cupbearer in prison were different. They looked alike. In fact, they were almost identical. The language used is identical. The baker has a dream that there's baskets of bread on his head, and Joseph says this is the interpretation. Three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Well, the cupbearer has this dream about grapes and three branches, and Joseph says, this is the interpretation. Three branches of three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. So far, they're identical. But then the contrast is, to cupbearer, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. As regards to the baker, Pharaoh will lift up your head and hang you on a tree. So, there are two witnesses, but they can have contrast. Cain and Abel are two witnesses. They both concern worshiping God. Rightly and wrongly the two sons of Eber the founder of the Hebrews are Joktan and Peleg Joktan gets involved with the Tower of Babel Peleg of course is the ancestor of Abraham These are contrasted Abram and Lot are a pair They come into the land together their lives are parallel to one another But they move into a contrast Sarai and Hagar Isaac and Ishmael are pairs But they're not good and evil. Hagar is the stranger. Her son is the God-fearing Gentile. They are not the ones that the covenant line will go through. But they're not evil either. They're just different. It's a different testimony. Jacob and Esau. Here we have more or less white and black. But they're parallel. In other words, Esau gives birth to kings. And like the end of Jacob's life, the last vision that we looked at, God comes to Jacob and says, you will give birth to kings. And of course, Benjamin is the child who's born right after that, and Benjamin is the king. That's why Joseph gives him five portions of food. As we'll see, Benjamin is treated as king. He is the king. Both of their lives move to the same place, but with a lot of contrasts. We pick up the theme, we get two witnesses somewhat different, but providing two sides of the same theme. That's part of it. Another part of it is, and I've got down here, pagan people often put twins to death when twins are born on the assumption that one will be an evil or mirror twin. They make fun of that on television, the evil twin. Well, that's because that's all over the world, the mirror twin. People don't know which twin will be bad. So since one of them is going to be evil, we'll just kill them both and try again. Or another possibility is that they know that twins will fight and that as they fight, fighting will spread into the community as people take sides. And so to prevent violence and the spread of violence, you eliminate twins, take them out in the woods and leave them there and have more children that aren't twins. Well, the Bible deals with that possibility with Jacob and Esau as they wrestle in the womb, and we talked about that some. But it shows also that there are other kinds of pairs, in other words, Lot who is paired with Abraham. They're not a pure twin, but they're a pair. He sins, but he's not wholly evil. Ishmael is different, but not evil. Judah has twin sons, Zerah and Perez, as we'll see. But neither one of them is bad or good. they are just two of them. We're not told that they fought or anything like that. Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It becomes important in the narrative. But there again... The Bible does not show that there is some great danger here. There's no putting them to death. If we were going into the third world where this kind of fear is very real, this is part of the Bible we might want to emphasize to people to get them past these traditions and fears about the dangers of twins. Finally, got down here, the doublings in the Joseph story seem to point in part to the fact that the opposition between doubles is not the last word. Jacob and Esau were mirrors, there is mirror twins, opposites, and that's true, but the Joseph story shows that doubling is not always mirroring. So the doubles that show up in the Joseph story are not mirror twins. We can understand this progression in Genesis this way the first thing that God has to say to us is that all humanity is evil in Adam, but the second thing is that part of humanity is saved, as with Abraham against the pagans and Jacob against Esau. God saves part of humanity. And then the last word is, the saved part of humanity reaches out to save the unsaved part, which is the mission of Abraham and the work of Joseph. So, well, I don't have anything here, but if you have all of humanity here that's headed for hell, God saves half of humanity, and then that half works to save the other half. That's what's going on. Jews are called to save Gentiles. Christians are called to take mission to the world. Jacob is called, and Jacob has to do things to make it right with Esau, even though Esau isn't saved. We looked at that. Joseph and his brothers, Joseph saves his brothers. Joseph and Judah save their brothers, as we'll see. So, yeah, you start off, you've got all of humanity here that's wicked, and then you do have a doubling, a twin, and one half of it is righteous. They have Jacob and Esau, but that's not the last word. The last word is that the righteous half works to save the unrighteous half and to redeem the whole. Of course, there's always some people who won't be redeemed, but the progression in history is positive. I mean, the book of Genesis ends... Israel has been set apart from the nations, and now the nations are all converted here by Joseph. Joseph has been exiled by his brothers, but now the brothers are saved. So that both of these pairs, of these divisions, are healed. The division between Joseph and his brothers is healed. The division between Jew and Gentile is healed. And essentially, you've got a converted world here at the end of the Joseph story. I've given you this, David Dorsey has analyzed the Joseph narrative as a set of pairs. This is from Dorsey's book, the Literary Structure of the Old Testament. He argues that you've got 14 very nicely boundaried narrative sections in the Joseph story. I'm not sure he's right about that. Some of them are. Obviously, chapter 38, the story of Judah and Tamar has a beginning and an end. It just stops perfectly right place. Potiphar's wife, in her attempt to seduce Joseph, chapter 39, has a very nice chiasic structure. There's no doubt that's one unit. Chapter 40, the story of the baker and the cupbearer, that's one unit. But not all of these are necessarily as nicely boundaried as he wants. But still, it's true that wherever the boundaries are, a lot of things happen twice. We start off with trouble between Joseph and his brothers and then the fact that they hate him, chapter 37, he's got that down to 111. His brothers were jealous of him. That's after the dreams. So he's got that as one section, the robe and the dreams. Then the next section is where they get rid of Joseph. So troubles between Joseph and his brothers. Call that two stories about that. Then you've got two clear parallel passages, the sexual temptation involving Judah, Judah and Tamar, and then Joseph and Potiphar's wife. That's contrastive, of course. Judah gets involved with Tamar when he shouldn't. Joseph refuses to get involved with Potiphar's wife. When we get to it, there are all kinds of very deliberate parallels between those two passages. Two dreams in prison. Two dreams of Pharaoh. He's got those matched out. The brothers come to Egypt for food twice. That's certainly true. Everybody remembers that. They came once, and then they had to go back again. He's got down here, Joseph has some of his family brought to him in 44.4 4 to 45.15. Well, see that's the climax of the second trip when they put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then Joseph calls them back to himself in this E section he's got down here, 44.4 4 to 45.15. Now, is is that a separate section or not? Don't know. In the next section, he has all of his family brought to him. That's true enough. That's what happens there. They all come down to Goshen. He's got two sections here, prospering in Egypt, Joseph ruling over Egypt, prospering in Egypt, blessings on Jacob's sons. Not sure that those two things are really parallel. Death of Jacob and death of Joseph. There's a kind of a pair there. But there are a lot of, things that happen twice in this scenario, even if he hasn't got it exactly right. So I wanted to point to that first, finish up from last time, and we do have something to observe in here. Is a lot of things happen twice, and in part, it's this testimony of two witnesses thing. When something happens twice, it means it's sure. Exactly why it's written that way, I don't know, but something to notice. Now we get to the more interesting part, although you have to think to follow this, and that is the chiastic structure of the Joseph narrative. As with the other narratives in Genesis, this one is chiastic, and there are thematic parallels between the beginning, end, and so forth in the structure. Now, Dorothy does it one way, and I do it slightly different, but pretty much the same. Let's look at Dorothy's, and you can just see... What he's got down here, I think he does a pretty good job of summarizing some of the themes. Notice the A section. He has Joseph dreams that the brothers will bow down. The brothers hate him. They cannot speak kindly to him. Joseph's age is given to 17. He's got that match down here with chapter 50, 15 to 26. Joseph's brothers come to bow down before him. You remember that? And Then they say, they're afraid that he will hate them. Because they say, now that Jacob is dead, what if Joseph would bear grudge against us and send us back or kill us? And they say, behold, we're your slaves. But Joseph speaks kindly to them, and then we're given his age at 110 and his death. So he sees these as parallel. What starts off as this brother's hating Joseph comes to the end, they're afraid Joseph will retaliate, but Joseph doesn't. And that's the final resolution of what starts at the beginning. What starts at the beginning, this hatred, come to the end, and it's resolved. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Then he's got the next two sections parallel, grievous mourning in Hebron. Jacob weeps over the death of Joseph. Jacob refers to his own future death. Joseph goes from Canaan to Egypt, last sentence in that section. As for Joseph, he was sold into Egypt, into the house of Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard, or however it's written. He's got that parallel to the mourning over Jacob. Joseph weeps over the death of Jacob near Hebron. When he and his brothers take Jacob's body back to Hebron, we have Jacob's death here. not just talking about his death, his death. Joseph goes from Canaan back to Egypt. At the end of this, when he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, Well, they are similar. The word Hebron is not used in this section, but Mamre is at Hebron, so they're similar. Again, Jacob weeps for Joseph in the first section, Joseph weeps for Jacob in the last. Well, I think that's basically right. Those things are working out. Then the next thing he's got is in chapter 38, C. The reversal of the elder and younger sons of Judah as firstborn, despite string tied to the hand. You'll remember that one son comes out, and I can never remember this. I guess once I've talked through this again, I'll remember it for a while. Genesis 38, it came about as she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place when she was giving birth. One put out a hand, the midwife tied scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came forth first. It came about as he drew back his hand that the oldest brother came out, and then she said, What a breach you've made. So he is called Perez. Afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. So Zira has the thread on his hand. The hand is emphasized here, and then in the matching section, C prime, where Jacob reverses the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember Joseph crosses his hands. And Joseph tries to uncross his hands, but Jacob says the blessing needs to go the other way. The younger will be over the older. Obviously these are parallel conceptually in terms of the switching of the sons and this is one of the important parallels between Judah and Joseph in the narrative. The most important parallel between the two is that Joseph undergoes these death and resurrection experiences that fit him to be a king. And what fits Judah to be the king is that Judah offers to die for Benjamin. And so this sacrifice of being willing to die for your brothers, I'm going to argue is the center of the passage. And that's the most important parallel between Judah and Joseph. Thematically, that's what is at the heart of things here. Joseph dies for his brothers. Judah dies for Benjamin. And that's what makes you fit to be a king. Jesus dies for us, and then he becomes king. And that's an important theme here, because kingship is a major theme in this passage. I mean, we should understand that in Genesis 35, right before this began, God appeared to Jacob and said, kings will come from you. Then Benjamin is born, and then we have this story, which is all about somebody becoming king of the world. And so kingship is a major theme in the entire Joseph story. As we'll see. How do I get off onto that? Well, the parallels between Judah and Joseph here. Joseph's enslavement to the Egyptian in 39. He's got parallel to Joseph's enslavement of the Egyptians in chapter 47. And you'll notice that he's got a lot of parallel phrases here. Joseph is sold. He's purchased. He becomes a servant to an Egyptian. He's got the Hebrew words there. Exactly the same language is used in chapter 47. The Egyptians are sold and purchased, and they become his servants. Joseph finds favor in the eyes of his master. The Egyptians seek to find favor in the eyes of Joseph, their master. Again, same words, parallel words. Joseph is second only to his master Potiphar. In chapter 47, Joseph is second only to Pharaoh. That's said. And the word lechem, or bread, shows up in both. It says that Potiphar did not know anything except the bread. That was put before him. Joseph was in charge of his bread. And similarly, of course, in chapter 47, the Egyptians are coming to get bread from Joseph. And Joseph is in charge of all the bread. So he goes from being in charge of the bread for Potiphar's house to being in charge of bread for all of Egypt. And in fact, all of the entire world, as it says, all the world came to Egypt to get bread from Joseph. So he's definitely got these parallels here. Don't there's any doubt that the way the passage is written, we're supposed to take these and look at them similar to each other. And notice that Joseph initially has all this importance. Potiphar, remember, is the captain of the king's bodyguard. He's one of the most important officials in the empire, and Joseph is his right-hand man. So Joseph has a tremendous amount of importance. And Joseph is over Potiphar's entire household, which means basically he's in charge of all the troops that guard the palace. And Potiphar leaves it all in his hand. And he takes care of feeding all the people in Potiphar's household. He's the manager, and he's second only to Potiphar, who's real important. But that's not as important as being second only to Pharaoh and being over the entire nation and feeding everybody. So we have to go through death and resurrection to get from the earlier privilege to the even greater privilege. That means we have to go into prison and then come out again. But they're very parallel, you see. Something's happened in between that makes Joseph even greater than he was before. They notice the bread theme here, food and bread, very important in this narrative. The narrative is all about bread. By the beginning, sheaves of grain bow down to Joseph. And then the word bread shows up in these passages, obviously. And then, of course, the famines and coming to Egypt for food and everything else. is right at the center of it, as we'll see in just a second. Well, he's got down here E, disfavor at Pharaoh's court. This is the story of the baker and the cupbearer where they're cast into prison. And then he's got matching that E prime favorite at Pharaoh's court where Joseph's family comes to Goshen to live there. And I think that's right. I've got this as F and F prime. I would call it Joseph in prison and Jacob in Goshen. I think that Joseph going into prison thematically and conceptually and then being in charge of things while he's in prison and managing things while he's in prison is the conceptual parallel to all of Israel going into Goshen and being kept there for a while before they go back to Canaan. Going down to Egypt and into Goshen is kind of death and then resurrection. You leave the promised land, you go to Egypt, you're in prison, you're dead, and then you're resurrected and come back out. Is the larger story. Joseph's experience is a micro-chron of that larger historical sequence that's going to come afterwards. And... Prison was not unpleasant for Joseph. He was in charge of it. He just would rather have been somewhere else. Living in Goshen wasn't unpleasant. It was great. They would rather have lived in the Promised Land, but if you're going to have to live somewhere else and be under Pharaoh, Goshen is pretty nice. And they were in charge of a lot of things. And Joseph was in charge of Egypt, just as he had been in charge of the prison. But it doesn't change the fact that prison is not full liberty And it doesn't change the fact that when you're in Egypt and you're under Pharaoh, that's not full liberty. Full liberty comes when you got your own land and you're not under Pharaoh anymore. And of course, eventually, Goshen does become a much more negative kind of prison, but it's not in Genesis, and so we don't want to import that into it. But there's a parallel between Joseph ruling inside the prison here at section E which he calls disfavorite Pharaoh's court. I would call it Joseph ruling in prison. And then E prime, which he calls favorite Pharaoh's court. But I would say Jacob and Joseph moving into Egypt and into Goshen. Those are parallel. What happens in a small way there with Joseph is happening in a large way to his whole family. So that's that. And then F, he's got Joseph's revelation of Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh has his dreams And then parallel to that is where Joseph tells his brother about being second to Pharaoh and about how he's been put in charge of everything. And then at the center, the brothers come to Egypt for food, which puts food at the center of things here, and I think that is important. Why is food so important in this narrative? This is obviously the last story in the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50. It's the end of Genesis. Why is food such a major theme in this story? Well, famine is a part of food, but why is food such an important subject in this story? I'm not going to spoon-feed you on this. Well, it has to do with worship, but not really in this passage very much. Why does Genesis end with a story about food? Yeah. Yeah, because the Garden of Eden, you fall because you eat food. I'm brutally disappointed in all the rest of you. Genesis begins with eating wrong food and being cast out. Genesis ends by being put back into the land of Goshen. What does it say in Genesis thirteen ten about the land of Goshen? It says it's just like the Garden of Eden. I didn't ask you to remember that, but hmm, food, food. Well, I think we can do a little bit more with this central section here. Look at page 157, and let me show you how I think we can have a little bit more detail in this chiasm, and it will bring out what I think is perhaps even more important theme than the food theme. If we start just Genesis 37, verse 1 by itself, it says, Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Mash that down at the end, this statement, Joseph dwelt in the land of Egypt, he and his father's household. These are quite parallel. Now, funny thing is, in your English translations, they're not. One of them says he lived, Jacob lived, and says Joseph stayed or something like that. It's the same word in Hebrew, but you're going to miss the parallel if you look at your English version. So I've got dwelt, and that's correct. 50.22 and 37.1 are almost the same phrase. They use the same words. So that is actually an even tighter connection between the beginning and the end. Then we have the story in Genesis 37, 2-11, the brothers hate Joseph. They cannot speak to him in peace. We have a conversation about dreams with brothers and with his father. The father says, hey, your mother and I and your brother's going to bow down to you. Is that what this means? And then the parallel to that, be prime at the end, the brothers fear Joseph. They fear Joseph will begrudge them. It's a different word. It's not the word hate, but it has Similar meaning. Joseph speaks to their hearts. That's not the same as Joseph speaking to them in peace. And by the way, Dorsey, when he summarizes this, would lead you to think that they're the same words, but they're not. But they're the same ideas. Then they come to him and they say, before our father died, he said, tell Joseph to please treat his brothers nicely. So there are parallels. And as I said before, the problem at the beginning of the narrative is being resolved here at the end. I think that you can do the next section a little bit differently and better. Jacob summons Joseph to report on his brothers. He says, Joseph, I want you to go and check upon your brothers and report back to me. And then, of course, what happens is that Reuben tears his garments and Jacob does, and they mourn for Joseph. The other brothers may not be mourning very much, but Reuben and Jacob do. See, primed out at the end, Jacob summons his sons and blesses them, and that's all of chapter 49. And then Joseph and the brothers and the Egyptians. Lots of other people involved here mourning for Jacob. The mourning has greatly increased. These people's hearts are soft now. D, Judah has sons by his daughter-in-law who were switched at birth. Hand is emphasized. We looked at that. In parallel, and this is the same, Jacob adopts the sons of his daughter-in-law, which I think makes it even closer. He says, these are now my sons, Joseph. They're not yours anymore. They're mine. I'm going to adopt them. And he switches them, and the hand is emphasized. E above, Joseph is enslaved by an Egyptian. E prime, down at the bottom, Joseph enslaves the Egyptians. That's parallel. Joseph in prison, F, F prime down here, Jacob in Goshen. And we just discussed that. And then G, Joseph put over Egypt in chapter 41. Joseph tells his brothers he is over Egypt, G prime down at the bottom. Joseph tells his brothers he's over Egypt in 45.8-15, which I think is the best way to do that. But now the central section, which Dorsey has as brothers come to Egypt for food, brothers come to Egypt for food again, I think you can do a whole lot more specifically. I may not have this right, but I'm pretty sure I do, or close enough. I'm, we'll look at this when we get to it, God. I don't want to just try to labor us through every detail here. But if you just look at it, you'll see there's a lot of parallels. The brothers come to Joseph, and they're afraid of him because he threatens them. And Joseph hears him talk. He weeps. Well, as you move back out of this chiasm, we find that Joseph is caused to weep. And then it says his brothers are afraid of him because he tells them who he is. And then he calls them to approach him at the end of the story, and he starts telling them what's open. And you can move in, but what's at the center of this narrative? At the absolute center is what I think is most important, and that's this offer to die for someone else. And at the center I have in, Reuben offers his sons, and you'll remember that. They empty out their sacks and they find the money and they tell Jacob that this horrible man down in Egypt has demanded that they bring Benjamin back with him. Now you'll remember, Joseph did not know there was anybody named Benjamin. Joseph had been sold into Egypt before Benjamin was born. Joseph was sold into Egypt before Rachel died, giving birth to Benjamin. The first time he ever heard about anybody named Benjamin was when he overheard the brothers talking about him. And so now he wants to meet his only pure brother, and he demands they bring Benjamin back. And Jacob says, No way! In verse 36, Their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. See, Joseph had kept Simeon back there in Egypt with him as a hostage until they brought Benjamin. And now you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And Reuben spoke to his father saying, You may put my two sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol and Sorrow. Well, there's some idea of sacrifice here, but it isn't very good, is it? I mean, it's what, <laughs> what comfort is it to Jacob to get to kill two of his grandchildren? And in the first place, Reuben doesn't offer himself. He offers his own sons. And that would be a whole lot of consolation to say, yeah, if Benjamin dies, you get to kill two of your grandchildren as well. That's not a solution. But it's a pagan solution. Paganism... Human sacrifice has that meaning. You're just going to pay things back. Buy off somebody's confidence by making an offer like that. When we get to it, I'll try to remember it. We can talk about pagan notion of sacrifice and human sacrifice, which is implied here. This isn't good enough. But then what matches that is Judah offers himself. Chapter 43, the famine was severe in the land. They finished eating. Your father says, go back and buy us food. Judah says, now it's not Reuben speaking anymore. Interesting. Reuben is the firstborn, but Judah kind of moves into this position here. Judah says, the man solemnly warned us, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. If you send our brother Benjamin with us, we will go down and buy you food. If you don't send him, we won't go down, for the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. Then Israel, Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man that you had another brother? They said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we told him according to these words. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our children. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you may require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then I shall have sinned before you all the days. Let me bear the blame forever. is the way it's paraphrased here. Now, Judah offers himself. That's what makes Judah the king. Willingness to die for your brother enables you to be a king. And of course, that's what happens then later on When they stand before Joseph and Joseph says, Ah, my silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack. I'm going to keep Benjamin here as my slave. And Judah comes and appeals to him in chapter 44 and says, Now therefore please let me remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. Judah offers to die for Benjamin. This is not how they treated Joseph, of course. Joseph is looking to see if these brothers' hearts have changed and that they're going to deal with Benjamin differently from the way they dealt with him. And in Judah, he sees it. But that's at the center, I think, of this entire story is this dying for others. Joseph does undergo death and resurrection experiences, but they're not voluntary. Now, Joseph wasn't looking to be dragged off into Egypt, and Joseph wasn't looking to be cast into prison. But Judah volunteers to die understand going into prison is death being thrown down into a pit is death becoming a slave is death all of these have the same zone of meaning judah offers to die for benjamin is the center of this story then when we get to the end judah is the one who will be the king the ruler staff will not depart from his feet until shiloh comes benjamin is the first king judah is the last king Who was the Benjamite who was the first king? Saul. Did Saul undergo any death and resurrection experiences before he became king? Did Saul suffer before he became king? No, he was just chosen as king. And who was the next king? The king from Judah. David. Did David go through a whole bunch of suffering and death experience before he became king? Yes, you see. The first Adamic king like Benjamin. Saul, the last king, king that comes as a result of dying for his brothers, is David or Jesus. Well, I think we'll just stop here because it makes a good place to stop. Next week we'll come back to it, look at the whole Joseph narrative and how it fits in the context of Genesis. I mean, we've come to the Sabbath day. Sabbath has to do with kingship and enthronement. And so obviously we've already glanced at that. So we'll take that up a little bit more, and then we'll look at some of these themes. The food theme, dreams. What have I got down here as themes? Food, dreams, investiture with robes. Important theme here. Adam was naked. Joseph gets all these robes. Kingship and sacrifice, which I just discussed. Kingship and power, the use of the word hand in this narrative. Hand is used a lot in this story, dealing with power and what the king does. And then kingship and anarchy. Jacob's household is in anarchy. And if we're going to move out of being just a family like Abraham into being a nation, we've got to deal with anarchy between brothers. And there's two solutions to that. One solution is law. And God gives law at Mount Sinai. But before he gives law, he gives a king. The king can organize things and rule them. And then the law comes similarly Yahweh becomes king of Israel, and then he gives his law. Similarly, Jesus becomes king, and then the epistles are written. So the relationship between kingship and rule, on the one hand, and dealing with this anarchy that is developed in the household is an important theme here as we reflect on God's plan for government and all the rest. So we'll look into that as we get going.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.